Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 18 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Today's episode is about grand families, and our guest is Dr. Glenda Clare. Glenda Clare is the founder of the Fragile Families Network, and it takes more than love project. Dr. Clare is an advocate for grand families, who are families created when a grandparent or grandparents or other family members raise the children of a relative who is unable or unwilling to parent. Dr. Clare has served as the North Carolina representative to the Generations United Grand Voices Network from 2018 to 2020. Dr. Clare earned a bachelor's degree in community health education and media arts from the University of South Carolina, a master's degree in counseling from North Carolina Central University, and a doctorate in counseling education from the College of William and Mary. Dr. Clare has worked as a public health liaison for the North Carolina HIV STD branch, substance abuse counselor for Duke's Family Care Program, program associate for the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University, NIDA liaison and CHATT manager for the Dania Institute, and the principal research associate for the National Development and Research Institute. So today I'm talking with Dr. Glenda Clare of Fragile Families Network. I'm so thankful to have you on our show today, Dr. Clare. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So let's talk a little bit about yourself and about Fragile Families Network and why you started Fragile Families Network and and when did it all begin? I have had in mind this Fragile Families Network for a number of years. I think that I was spurred to want to create it after going to a funeral and coming home a parent. (laughs) Single person in my doctoral program. All I did was go to my paternal aunt's funeral and my life completely changed uh, as I was coming home with this child, my cousin's child, that I was now responsible for. As I dealt with my child, and I'll tell you more about this later as I explain what a grand family is, but as I dealt with my cousin, I found out that I knew so very little, and I found out that my colleagues knew so very little. My background and training had been in public health and in behavioral health. And the behavioral health in me was in full use at that particular time. When my cousin came to live with me, she had a number of behavioral health challenges. I didn't know about them at first. When when she first came to live with me, what was clear was that here she is, she's going to go live with this person that she doesn't know very well in a whole nother state. And so I immediately, my behavioral health 
background kicked in and I got a counselor for her because I just wanted to kind of do some grief counseling. Her grandma had died. You know, you're going to live with this cousin. How do you feel? Making the adjustments, all of that. However, as other behaviors started to emerge, I found that a lot of people in my field were clueless. And so at that point, I decided that there was a need for me to get more training, but I also needed, as I learned more, to provide training to other people. The Fragile Families Network, I've kind of sort of dabbled in it for a little while. However, it has become really official within the last couple of months. In March of 2020, I got my nonprofit status from the IRS, and I'm getting everything with my website uh, built out and I'm doing programming. One particular program that is focused on grand families is the Facebook page, It Takes More Than Love, because it takes more than love to raise a relative's child. Usually people think grandparent. No, I'm saying grand family. A grand family is created when a grandparent or other family member raises the child of a relative unable or unwilling to parent. Those relatives can be a grandparent, and there are a lot of grandparents. Most of these people that are heading grand families are grandparents. However, there are also siblings, aunts, uncles, and I'm one of the rare cousins. But it's any member in the biological family, and it actually can also be fictive kin. When I got custody of my cousin, there were actually two other children in the household and a fictive kin, a, a cousin who's not really biologically related, but we always thought of each other as kin. She took the other two children. And so a grand family is those family members, those people who consider themselves kin, that are coming together, um, or maybe not, they may be by themselves, um, but they are assuming custody for a child so that that child um, has some kind of support network. Those children, most of them, unlike most people believe, are not in the child welfare system. The national average is for every 20 children that go to live with a relative, only one of them is in the child welfare system. And because they are not in the child welfare system, there's a lot of issues in terms of support from others. However, most people are not in the child welfare system because they don't want their children to become wards of the state. They stepped up to the plate to help this child because they wanted to have a say in terms of what schools the child goes to, what doctors the child goes to, how this is going to happen, how that's going to happen. And you don't have that when the child is a ward of the state. The state ultimately is in control. And a lot of people don't like that. And I have to admit that I was one of them. Two things stand out from hearing your story. First of all, like so many people that become advocates, you have a personal connection. Um, yes. just, like, just like I have a personal connection with FASD, with our son having an FASD and talking with other guests, there's that personal connection. That's number one. Number two, the prevalence 
of grand families is high and it's higher than we think. So you are stepping up, not only did you step up personally, but you're also stepping up professionally by educating our community and, and our society about grand families and how they need this support. And I think that's so important. I'm so glad we're having this conversation today. There are more than 3 million grand families in the United States of America. Wow. That's a lot. And that's as of the last census. Who knows how many more there are, especially since we've had this opioid um, epidemic and, and a lot of other things that are, that are going on. And one of the things that we need to be honest about that people often don't talk about is the fact that these children have been children that have experienced trauma with their birth parents. And so because they've experienced trauma, they bring that into the households that they now come to live to. You know, a lot of people are just not prepared for some of the challenges. I have to admit, I wasn't, you know, she, my cousin looked like this sweet little, sweet little angel. And that's not to say that she isn't a sweet little angel, although she's 26 years old now. She was a sweet person However, she was dealing with a lot of grief, a lot of loss, a lot of hurt. And that stuff comes out and it doesn't always come out in a very nice way. Talking about grand families is such an important topic because number one, we are not aware of the prevalence of how many grand families are out there. And number two, there are serious challenges that grand families face when parenting, when raising their child because of, like you said, trauma. There's also, and, and this we're going to talk about this in, in a minute, exposure to alcohol or drugs, exposure to possibly abuse. There's a lot of challenges that come along with it. So why do you think this is just such an important topic for us to talk about today? You know, when I met you, you actually raised my awareness. In terms of the behavioral health and my background with behavioral health, I had specialized in the area of substance abuse. I was somewhat familiar with FASD because I had done a lot of perinatal substance abuse work. I was exposed to it on a limited level, but I never really looked into it. Since I've been communicating with you, I've been looking into it a lot more and thinking about it a lot more in ways that I had not expected. One of the things that I had learned, number one was to look at this as a spectrum, like autism as, is a spectrum, as a spectrum. So it has a continuum from those that are more serious cases than, than others um, in terms of how this impacts the child and ultimately the family. I had not really given that a lot of thought. When I was exposed to FASD, I was exposed 
using specific criteria. So I remember the main thing that I was told was that you could look at a child's face and then you could see. However, as I am learning now, you cannot see just by looking at a child's face. So that I think was one of the first things I did when my cousin came to look live with me. I knew her mother had a substance abuse problem and I looked at her face and I thought, oh, those features are not there. That's not an issue for her. But now I'm thinking a bit differently. I, I, I don't know. It's something now for me to give more thought to. And I think that I am a person that is trained as a behavioral health professional with a specialty of substance abuse. Most grand families are not. So they're not thinking about any of this. I am so thankful that we're having this discussion today because I believe that we are going to be hopefully educating and enlightening so many grand families out there who may be listening or people who may know grand families to bring these issues to light because just like the prevalence of grand families is 3 million, that's staggering. We know the prevalence of FASD in a recent 2018 study done by UNC researcher, Dr. Philip May, prevalence is estimated to be one in 20 children have yes. an FASD. And like you said, it, I would say 80 to 90% of the time, there are no physical features. So what you are, so when you are a grand family and you're parenting a child, like you said, you looked at your cousin and she did not have any of the facial features. However, we know that many of these behavioral symptoms, these behaviors are actually symptoms of the exposure to alcohol, to other substances, and also from the trauma that child has been through. So we hopefully can educate people that what they may be seeing are not bad behaviors, but actually behavioral symptoms that are coming from a brain difference. Let's talk more about the challenges and the problems that grand families face when they're raising their grandchildren. Well, the first thing I want to point out is that more than a million of these grand families out of these three million, more than a million are in place because of a parental substance use disorder. What I know as a person that has expertise in substance abuse is that if a person's main drug is cocaine or heroin or methamphetamines, they are still using alcohol. Alcohol is like that universal drug. So that means to me that this really could be an issue that we need to take a further look at in terms of grand families. And I really don't think that anyone is doing that. We are looking right now at opioids and that's because opioid is the hot topic for the moment. However, just the general use of alcohol is really not something that, that we've looked at. 
in terms of what grand families experience. I'm gonna talk first about my experience. When my cousin came to live with me, I was about 40 years old. I had a pretty good career. I made relatively good money. I could take care of her basic needs. I was familiar with what a child needed in terms of education and support. I got a schooling in terms of what they need nowadays. There were a lot of things that caught me by surprise. Her behaviors also caught me by surprise. As I mentioned earlier, it takes more than love to raise a relative's child. I was not prepared for issues with her mother. I was one of those people that when I assumed custody, I thought that her mother and I would do this together because her mother is my first cousin. That was not the case. Grand families are dealing with a number of things. Those, let's see, let me go back. The majority of grand families are, or at least the head of those grand families, are people who are under the age of 60, which I was. I think about 63% are under the age of 60. I believe that about 58% are in the workforce. 25%, about 25% have a disability, about 25% are living a life of poverty. However, they all have the same issues in terms of looking at some of the issues that come up related to behavior that impact education, they all have the same issues as it relates to education, making sure that their educational, the educational needs of their children are taken care of and that the children have teachers that have, have the ability to be empathetic, have the ability to work with the family to be able to provide what is best for the family. There's also issues in terms of just support for this role, this new role. When a relative assumes custody for a relative's child, the whole dynamics in a family change. I was a cousin. I now become the pseudo mother, although I'm not the mother. And the mother becomes, I guess, the cousin or somebody else because I'm now in this place of taking the place of the mother. The same is true for the grandparents. They were the grandparents, now they're the parents. So that the birth parent then becomes what? A sibling to the child? So everything kinds of shifts when the with the family dynamics and there are other issues that come up. So there's guilt, there's shame, there's jealousy, there's loyalty issues. There's a lot of stuff that comes with these grand families. And now 
if FASD is in the picture, then you've got other stuff that is coming into the picture that you need to pay attention to. What I learned that, you know, with FASD, some of the symptoms were impulsivity, lower developmental level, hyperactivity, poor memory, difficulty in school, especially with math, some learning disabilities. These grand families now, these heads of these families now are stepping in and taking over in terms of helping children. And a lot of times, you know, they were just coming in to make sure that the child was safe. They, they didn't know that all of this other stuff was coming as well, that they need to know about, that they need to educate themselves about, that they need to now find resources to be able to help the child. They, they don't know necessarily about all of those things or how to handle it. And as I mentioned before, only one out of 20 is in the child welfare system. So that means that they don't really have anybody that's directing their path or providing resources to help them to get assessments and, and extra medical and behavioral health resources that they need. They, they don't have anybody that's showing them that and, and showing them how to connect to these resources. That's, that's not available. And that's why you founded Fragile Families Network. And that's yes. why, you know, other advocates that have family connections, we, we are starting other things because oftentimes, and I'm interested to see your opinion on this, but I found in our family's journey, oftentimes the people that have been the most helpful to us are the people that didn't have to be. They were the people that walked the same walk or they knew something that could be helpful. They knew a resource or they knew a contact or something. Most often I found for us, the best resources were by word of mouth. I don't know if you've experienced that as well. Yes, I, I have to agree with you. I call the population that I think that you're referring to, I call them people with lived experience. Yes, yes. They are the ones that really know because they've really gone through this. Yes. You know, those of us that are professionals, we know about some things, but we really haven't lived it. So we don't, we, there are limits to what we know. And even when we do have some knowledge, there's another level of knowledge that comes when you are actually walking this walk and living this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Out of the 3 million, approximately, it's, I'm sure the number's higher, but you know, now probably approximately 3 million grandfamilies are out there. And out of them, you said about 1 million have had um, the, the biological parent, there was substance abuse involved. Yes. So, and we know that when there are illegal drugs, that oftentimes people either forget or they just don't think about mentioning that there's alcohol abuse in that mix. So how do you think the issue, the, the crisis of FASD is affecting grandfamilies? I think that it's definitely affecting grandfamilies. So, you know, I'm going to go back to the numbers that you just spoke of. So those numbers 
I relate those numbers to a count that someone did. Um, I'm getting my numbers from organizations associated with the Annie Casey Foundation and Generations United and those kind of organizations that are collecting that information, Administration for Children and Family Services. They are looking at numbers for people who have essentially been found to have a substance use disorder. It has been diagnosed, it has been confirmed that there is a substance use disorder. When I think of alcohol use, I see something completely different. Number one, alcohol is part of mainstream America. Very few people are not having a drink. It's part of what people do. In America, it's sanctioned. This is um, pretty commonplace. And so no one is paying attention to those people. So I mentioned to you that people come, children come to live in grand families because there has been death in the family. There's been divorce. There's been domestic violence. There's been parental substance abuse, parental incarceration. Maybe somebody has been deported or deployed into the military. Well, let's go back. Deployment. The same thing is true in terms of domestic violence. Parents could have been drinking, but they might not have, you know, had a diagnosis as a substance use disorder. Same thing is true for divorce. Same thing is true in terms of a lot of things. This particular disorder is not considered because people really don't think about alcohol as a drug that creates problems for children. They're not thinking about that. It's not a thought that comes, you know, comes in their mind. You know, a lot of people every day, they come home from work, they've had a rough day, oh, they'll have a glass of wine. Nobody sees any harm in that. But if the woman is pregnant, it could create some problems. And again, you're, you're bringing up so many key points that we, as a society, alcohol is legal and we, you know, forget that the prevalence of alcohol use is probably much higher than we suspect. And, and especially now during COVID, I'm seeing news articles that are showing that consumption of alcohol is up by like 30%. Um, you know, I'm seeing these articles across, you know, different news resources, but alcohol consumption is up now, especially during the COVID pandemic. So we forget that alcohol is so ingrained in our culture, in our society, like you said, that there is that exposure. We, we don't think about that. They closed down all of the stores for COVID. The ABC stores, the liquor stores, they did not close them. That's right. That's right. Yes. And that goes to show how ingrained and important society considers alcohol. That's a very startling point that you're bringing up. So let's talk about, we know fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. There are quite a few diagnoses under the umbrella of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. How can we bring awareness to 
grand families so that they can learn about this and that we can send them in the right direction for training, for supports, for education. What are your ideas on how we can better educate grand families and, and those out there? One of the things that I know that I have decided to do, I was actually looking through uh, a lot of resources over the last couple of days. I recognize that this is Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder Awareness Month. It is also National Recovery Month. I had posted information about National Recovery Month on my It Takes More Than Love page on Facebook, but I really had not put up much information about this I am going to, for the remainder of the month, start talking about this because this actually has just as much impact as National Recovery Month. National Recovery Month is paying attention to those people with a substance use disorder that are working on recovery and they are in treatment. However, you know, families can be supportive of those people. However, this is to a whole, this is a different thing. This is actually looking at the impact of those substance use disorders on children and helping grand families, number one, to identify that this is an issue and that this is an issue that they need to learn more about and that they need to um, start learning about what they can do about it. Because my understanding is that prevention matters with this, with this disease process. That if you can, the more that you can intervene, the earlier on, the, the more likely that there will be positive outcomes. Am I correct in that? Yes. And FASD, any, any type of FASD we know is a lifelong disability. So it's something yes. that they will not grow, but yes, a hundred percent. If you can have an early diagnosis or if you can have a diagnosis or support when the child is younger, then that will help be able to focus on the strengths and be able to accommodate to that child's needs at a younger age. So a hundred percent. Yes. That, you know, there, there are two aspects of FASD. The first one is prevention. So, you know, educating people, you know, not to drink, you know, if they're trying to conceive or anything like that. And then secondly is the support aspect and, and the diagnosis aspect. And those aspects are all equally important. So I'm really glad that you're combining FASD awareness with the substance abuse. You know, I know September is Substance Abuse Awareness Month also. So it really does go hand in hand. So that is great that you are making that, you know. But I wanted to take this to another level. Yeah. One of the things that I also looked into, which I think is, um, is interesting is, Okay, I live in North Carolina now. I, in the past, worked for the National Addiction Technology Transfer Center Network. So the network has 14 different regional centers. I worked for the Central East Addiction Technology Transfer Center. Actually, I still do consultant work with them. However, we were talking about this. 
And I don't believe anybody is talking about this. This would be a great topic for discussion as it relates to fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I don't really know that our perinatal substance abuse programs throughout the nation are talking about this. This is something that they should want to talk to the women in their programs about. I don't know that the programs throughout the country that are training addiction specialists are talking about this. There's a lot of populations that I don't think. So we have conferences throughout the year um, for addiction professionals. We have certification hours that are required that we have to take every year. There's a lot. And I, I know, I, as I said, when we first started this conversation today, I thought back about my, my experience and my experience learning anything about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder was back in the 1990s. I remember going somewhere. I worked at Duke at the time in the perinatal substance abuse program. I remember going out of state somewhere to a conference, but it didn't and that was just because I was working for that perinatal substance abuse program at that time. But no other time has this spectrum disorder ever come up. And I've been working in the field of substance abuse for a long time. I think that, I think that people like you need to pair up with people like me. <laughs> that have an interest in this. And um, so for instance, I don't know that you would be able to get on the agenda at various conferences like this, but I got a doctorate and, <laughs> and I'm an old seasoned professional. I know how to write the proposals and get on the dockets to talk about this and to relate this specifically in substance abuse terms so that people now would pay more attention to this because this falls in the range of on our treatment continuum from prevention to treatment. Right. And actually I'm thinking that since usually substance use disorders are generational things. So for instance, if uh, my cousin was a substance abuser, you're probably going to find other people in the family um, her elders, her children that are also substance users, this is a prevention issue for me. And so I think it can be couched as such to get people to start talking about this. Definitely, definitely. And I have a feeling, Dr. Claire, that you and I are going to be talking much more in the future. This, this is <laughs> that just, works for me. <laughs> that works for me too. This is just the beginning. And, you know, my background, I, I was actually trained professionally as a music therapist and a recreation therapist oh. and many many years ago um you know before we began homeschooling our son um i i worked in gosh i'm gonna say more than 20 years ago so this was mid 90s i worked with in the veterans hospital with mm. who had substance abuse and mm. and i can remember back then there was no mention of any of this there was none, you know, and especially talking about discharge planning and having family come in and everything. I remember being on 
so many treatment team meetings and, and discussions and n FASD was, was not even mentioned, you know, so I agree a hundred percent that there needs to be more collaboration between the FASD advocates and educators and those who are working in the substance abuse community, because right now I think it's, it's kind of, we just stumble upon each other, you know, yes. and it needs to be more intentional. The emphasis seems to be on opioids, you know, illicit, illegal drugs, you know, versus alcohol, which we know is the most harmful of all yes. of the drugs that, that are exposed. And so, it goes along with all those other drugs. If they use those other drugs, they're also having to drink. Absolutely. So I like to end our conversations on FASD hope with hope, because I think that's a huge factor that families need to hear, grandfamilies need to hear. How can we better support our grandfamilies and, and to give them hope. What, what are your suggestions? I think hope begins with education. I need to know what's happening. I need information. If I can get information, that starts me to thinking about what are the possibilities? Who do I need to get in contact with? How do I get in contact with them? Without the education, I'm sitting there, I'm noticing that these things are happening and I feel powerless because I don't know what's happening. If you give me some information, then I can start hopefully moving towards finding some solutions, finding some resources to help me and the children in my life. Not only is there hope in education, but knowledge is power. It is. You know, it gives you, it arms you with strategies, with accommodations, with tools, with things like that. So I, I'm so happy to hear you say that. And what we will be doing on FASD Hope um, in our program notes is we'll be putting some resources for uh, families to start educating themselves and to start learning more about FASD and how it may be affecting their family. So Dr. Glenda Clare, this has been a wonderful conversation. Yes. Uh, can you please uh, share how people can get in touch with you so that they can learn more about Fragile Families Network and It Takes More Than Love? I want people to contact us by going to Facebook and entering in It Takes More Than Love. We've got a webpage there that is being populated no, our regular webpage is not up yet because we're still basically new. We're working on some things. But that Facebook page is active. Please come and visit us there. It takes more than love. It takes more than love to raise a relative's child. Terrific. And also, if you're interested in emailing Dr. Claire, you can email us here at FASD Hope and we can put you in touch with her. But again, uh, it takes more than love on Facebook is the best way to reach Dr. Claire. Dr. Claire, thank you again. This has been a wonderful conversation and it gives me hope on how we can help grand families. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Vecchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us next week 
And remember, to be informed, take care, and always have hope.